You tuned in for another edition of Table Talk Radio. I'm Evan Gigan with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Hello, Evan. I'm uh, sitting here in the studio of, of Aurora, Colorado, seeing the, the great view here from your yeah, basement. Yeah, looking at <laughs> looking at the mirrors on both sides. I, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're on the line with Professor John Plass of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Professor Plass, welcome to Table Talk Radio. Good to be with you again today. Today we are uh, playing the game, um, answer the question as, with a new little twist. Pastor Wolfman, you want to tell us about this new little twist? Sure. Evan has an Urim and a Thurum, and uh, we've got the dice here, and so we've got it charted out. I've got six different churches, uh, Tridentine Catholic, Vatican II Catholic, Mainline Liberal, Emergent Church, Holiness Movement, or Reformed. And then Evan has six questions. What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? How is one justified before God? What is sanctification? What are pastors, priests, and who should become one? And how do we know what is true? So I'm going to roll the Urim for the church body, and Evan, uh, the radio clown gag line, is going to roll the Thurum for the question, and then Professor Pless, that's what you'll, uh, what you'll have to give to us. So. <laughs> so okay. Sounds like fun to me. Okay. Good. I've got number one. That's Tridentine Catholic, and your question is... Uh, how do we know what is true? So I am to answer this as a Tridentine Catholic, right? Yes. Well, we know what is true uh, from the scriptures, which are part of the great tradition, uh, mediated uh, to us through the authoritative teaching office in the church. That is the office that stands in success as uh, the successor of uh, St. Peter. Oh, that's all, huh? Just just the by Peter. The, the church is the ground and the pillar of the truth, and it is only from one's life in that uh, church, uh, united under the vicar of Christ, uh, that we know what truth is. That's really kind of stunning. I, You know, I used to think that the, in the classic the distinction, they would say that the Catholic Church has three pillars of authority. You have the scriptures and tra- tradition and the church. But really, you have scriptures and tradition subsumed under the one teaching office of the church. So they really have a single pillar of authority, the, the teaching of the church. I think that's what, what you're saying there, huh? Oh, I think so. And uh, again, uh, this is not to say that scripture is not honored as authority. It is authoritative, but it is a mediated authority. It is not uh, the sola scriptura of, uh, of, of Lutheranism. Well, there you go. There's the answer to the question, how do you know what's true from a Tridentine Roman Catholic? That's good to know. Uh, let's, let's, should we roll again then? You go first for the question. All right. The question is, number three, how is one justified before God? And answer this question as someone in the holiness movement. We are justified by God uh, through uh, through His His grace, uh, which imparts to us a holiness of life. That it is by His grace that we are made to be holy people. Uh, the Scripture exhorts us uh, to seek after holiness, without which no one can see God. And and so we we find our uh, salvation, in fact, in uh, in God's uh, in God's holiness, uh, that uh, He commands us in His Word to be uh, to be set apart, uh, to come out from among all that is unholy, and uh, it is only in His holiness that we find salvation. All right, that I think that's a, a pretty uh, sufficient answer. Would you agree, Pastor Wolfmuller? Oh, sure. I mean, it's it is stunning. Is that uh, salvation then depends on us? 
us being holy. Now, it's God who works that holiness, but it's now, it's us cooperating with God, coming along with God, uh, uh, manifesting the Holy Spirit in our lives that then brings us, uh, that brings us justification, which is a terrible confusion between justification and sanctification. I mean, the Holy Spirit does live in Christians, but it's a, it comes as the result of our justification, not as, as that which causes it. So, And I think at the end of the day, uh, someone in the holiness movement, when, when you asked, how do you know you're justified? He would end up looking inwardly, looking at himself. Well, I, I know I'm justified because, look, I'm doing a good job of living a, a, a holy life, opposed to uh, looking to the cross of Christ. Yeah, Professor Plus, you know, I mean, this is one of the most marvelous things in our Lutheran confessions. When Luther says that the same, the Pope has the same problem as the enthusiasts, is that they're always looking inside to the, to that which is in their own heart. And so, really, it's kind of a stunning thing. How are you justified? Answered by someone in the holy, holiness movement, and how do you know what's true? Answered by a Tridentine Roman Catholic. It really comes down to the same thing. It's what's on the inside of your heart. The old papal answer was that uh, truth is enshrined in the heart of the uh, uh, of the pope and and here with the holiness uh, uh, my my standing before god the holiness movement my my standing before god is uh, is contingent on my my holiness a holiness that uh, no doubt is uh, initiated by by god's grace but is finally brought, brought to a perfection by my own striving Oof. All right, well, I think it's time to to throw another question at, at right. Professor Pless. This is can't be an easy thing to. I mean, those of you who want the Table Talk Radio home game, I don't know if we're going to. This is for uh, uh, advanced theologians only. Professor Pless, this is we're putting you on the hot seat here. And, and the que- the question number f- uh, number four is what is sanctification? And here comes the Urim and number four again. So answer that as an emergent church teacher. Sanctification is about growth in spirituality, that um, we're not sanctified by what we um, achieve in terms of kind of a moral perfection necessarily, but we are, we are sanctified as we really uh, become, uh, become one with the mystery of the triune God. And we live out that mystery in, in this uh, community uh, that is shaped by uh, the biblical narrative. And as we are conformed to the narrative of Israel and Jesus, uh, we, uh, we in our own lives uh, reflect then uh, this identity that, uh, uh, that we see in the history of Israel and we see embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So really, sanctification is my being conformed uh, to this uh, to the biblical story. Israel was set apart, and Jesus is the chosen one who is set apart as the Messiah, and now his church corporally is uh, is is set aside for this uh, uh, for this pilgrimage, this uh, journey into the uh, into the mystery of the divine life, and I get to participate in that. Seminary and Gagling is over here nodding his head. I think that's what he's learning at the seminary. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, so it's not about the um, it's about being brought into this broad kind of narrative of scripture. So it's not about look the Lord 
has certain commands that we would love our neighbor and serve him in vocation, but it's rather becoming part of this kind of uh, mystical th- uh, thing, which is the church and participating in divorce, its life. If you di- uh, if you divorce those uh, commands, those imperatives uh, that we find in the Scripture uh, from the narrative of Israel and Jesus, uh, we're left with a kind of moralism. And in place of that moralism, what we in the emergent church see is the Christian life is really more about participation in a mystery. There you go. Do we have a time for uh, one more there? Maybe one more quick one here. Okay. Oops. Number two, uh, what is the Lord's Supper? Okay, and answer this question as, oh, an emergent church again, your favorite. Well, we're kind of stuck with being emergent here today, aren't we? Yeah, sorry. Um, The Lord's Supper is the meal of the New Covenant, uh, which was established by Jesus. Now, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he was one who was always having a table fellowship in all kinds of places. Uh, that it's not simply that uh, Jesus, on uh, the night in which he was betrayed, uh, did something extraordinarily new, but we see the Lord's Supper as a part of a continuum of meals that uh, started really already in Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, for example, when he would eat uh, at the house of uh, Zacchaeus, uh, the repentant uh, tax collector, or when he would uh, break bread with uh, with others, Mary and the home of Mary and Martha, for example. And we need to see the Lord's Supper in that continuum of meals uh, that uh, starts during the earthly ministry of Jesus and, in fact, continues in his post-resurrection appearances, so that in Luke 24, uh, on the Emmaus Road, uh, Jesus uh, takes bread, uh, breaks it, and uh, after giving thanks, and Luke tells us that he is recognized by the disciples in the breaking of the bread. And so we ought to see the Lord's Supper as part and parcel of that uh, of that meal tradition. But it's not enough to leave it back there. Uh, Jesus continues to show up today when his people uh, gathered together, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly, uh, experienced this divine fellowship uh, as uh, over uh, over blessed food, food that is indeed blessed by his presence. Uh, there is conversation, and, uh, and, 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 and Jesus speaks to the deepest uh, needs of, of, the human, of the human heart. And what better way to enact that exchange uh, than to have a meal together? And so the Lord's Supper might be celebrated at uh, the high altar of a cathedral or in a uh, lowly table in a coffee house as uh, we, commune, uh, we commune with one another uh, in eating, uh, in eating and, and, and drinking. And so we should be striving in our emergent Christianity for a genuine kind of sacramental <laughs> renewal that, uh, uh, that, sees, uh, that sees all meals as, as holy meals, uh, that sees all food as, uh, as, as sacramental. And when we enact this uh, uh, ritual of, of passing bread and cup, uh, we can know that uh, Jesus, who uh, was there with his disciples on the Emmaus Road, is also there uh, with us, binding us uh, together in a uh, real communio and giving us a foretaste of the feast to come. Professor Puss uh, is very good at, at answering as an emergent church. Uh, we're going to have to go to a break, though. Professor Puss, you want to stay over the break and play a name that theologian with us after this break? 
I'll do that for a bit, I guess. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Reluctantly, I love it. <laughs> we'll be right back. Uh, more Table Talk Radio right after this break. Talk Radio. Uh, we're on the line with Professor John Pless, professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's on the line with us. We just got done playing uh, Answer the Question As, but uh, I think we have a, a bit of a follow-up, Pastor. Yeah, I was. you were talking about how in the emergent church, their view of the Lord's Supper, it kind of uh, it undoes the uniqueness of the of the testament of the the fact that Jesus is giving his his uh, his New Testament in his body and in his blood on the night when he was betrayed, and it it wants to see the Lord's Supper um, in every time Jesus sits down to eat with someone. And so my question, Professor Pless, is what's I mean, what's lost when you do that? It seems like to me what would be lost would be the whole point of Jesus giving his New Testament, which is the forgiveness of sins. But uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that that indeed is what is. What is lost? Uh, uh, what makes the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper? It is uh, precisely in the fact that it is a meal that is absolutely unique to Jesus. Uh, nothing like the Lord's Supper ever ever uh, occurred before in the history of all all of Israel. In fact, when you look at uh, the Passover meal and lay the Passover meal alongside the Lord's Supper, uh, one should ask uh, not simply what are the points of continuity. Uh, but more specifically, what is new, what is different about the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, it is uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who uh, takes away the sin of the world, who actually gives us his body to eat and his blood to drink. Uh, old uh, old Israel uh, had the command from the Lord uh, that the life of the creature is in the blood, Leviticus 17, and that the blood is not to be consumed. Uh, here is one who stands as Lord over uh, over the Old Testament, the Old Testament bearing witness to him, and yet he comes and does something that would have been unthinkable for any Jew. He says of this cup, this cup is my blood, uh, drink it for the forgiveness of your sins. Just as he says of the bread, this bread is my body given for you. Forgiveness of sins ties Lord's Supper uh, together uh, with the cross. And Luther sees this most especially then with uh, Jesus' use, use of the Greek word diatheke, which uh, in the Greek language at the time of the New Testament was a secular word uh, denoting what we would call today a last will and testament. And so when we come to receive the Lord's Supper, uh, there we hear the words of Jesus' own last will and testament, a last will and testament that is set in motion by his death. And what he gives us then to eat and to drink, his body and his blood, uh, body and blood mentioned separate indicate sacrifice has already taken place. And so we come to the Lord's Supper not to offer a sacrifice, uh, but to receive the fruits of that sacrifice. And the fruits of that sacrifice are encapsulated in the word, in the words uh, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
it's stunning too that the, I mean that the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper is is right there in the words that Jesus is giving when he says this is the New Testament. It's it's new, right? And so we we ought to know that. Look, this is something very very unique. Like you said, in the history of the whole world, nothing like this has ever happened. And and to, and to try to kind of see this continuity between all the meals that Jesus eats, or all the meals that the priests eat in the Old Testament, or the Emmaus Road meal, or even or even the Passover. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you, I mean, this is the kind of history of religion shtick where they they say, oh, every religion has a com- has a community meal. Every religion has a ritual washing. So that's just the uh, Christians have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Other religions have something. But the, in in the gifts that Jesus gives, there is an absolute uniqueness. Uh, there, there's a newness to them because it comes with the newness of the gospel. Exactly, and uh, and while one may. Uh, try to trace points of commonality when you get to the heart of the matter uh, all the commonalities uh, fall away and you're left with what is utterly uh, without parallel astonishingly new fantastic body and blood given us to eat and to drink all right well we have a few minutes left then for name that theologian uh, professor i will give you uh, three quotations and your task is then to identify the theologian from which these quotations are made the first one is this the church lashed on to the old doctrine of original sin like a stick to a dog. And before you knew it, the whole gospel got twisted around it. Instead of being God's big message of saving love for the whole world, the gospel became a little bit of a secret information on how to solve the pesky legal problem on, on, of original sin. So that's the first one. And here's the second. The church has been preoccupied with the question, what happens to your soul after you die? As if the reason for Jesus' coming can be summed up in Jesus is trying to help more souls into heaven opposed to hell after they die. I just think a fair reading of the gospel blows that out of the water. I don't think the entire message and life of Jesus can be boiled down to that bottom line. And the last quotation is this. How do you know if something is true? First, you engage in spiritual practices like prayer, Bible reading, forgiveness, and service. Then you see what happens. You remain open to experience. Finally, you report your experience to others in the field of spirituality for their discernment to see if they confirm your findings or not. Professor Pless, any idea who that theologian may be? Sounds like um, some kind of emergent church theologian to me. <laughs> Warm. <laughs> that's pretty hot, actually. Yeah, that's really yeah. hot. Um, Brian McLaren? Hey! Uh, that's right. At first I think I'd say Brian Wolfmuller, but no, it, it, no. You're, you're right. Brian McLaren. I... Yeah. Neutral Brian. The other Brian. Uh, that's from his book. Uh, These are from three different uh, citations. Uh, the first one was from The Last Word and uh, and the, after the, the Word After That. The second one was a quotation that he made on a PBS special on the Emerging Church. And the last one from a generous orthodoxy. Now, Evan, tell us how much time we have in the segment here, and then Professor Plus, perhaps you could comment on how you knew that was emerging church and uh, and what the trouble with what we read was. Okay, Professor, maybe about three minutes to, to reflect on this. Now, what am I supposed to do? Oh, just how did you how did you identify that as an emerging church? I mean, uh, for those listening, and they're listening to that, and they say, well, I don't have any idea who that clown is how did you what what gave it away as an emergent well it just sounded like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes um, um, i mean it had the uh it had the flair of redefinition hmm? that uh the writer and i don't have those texts before me so i can't uh 
uh, I can't cite the exact um, words of his of his text, but um, he um, uh, talks about you know uh, kind of what the church has believed, but now this is something uh, this is something new, and it is uh, very much cast in the uh, language of personal experience. Uh, Professor, maybe you could, uh, I have another quote uh, by Brian McLaren here, this one from A Generous Orthodoxy. Maybe if you could uh, tell us how this fits into the uh, emergent theology. Uh, He says, The Christian faith I am proposing should become, in the name of Jesus Christ, a welcome friend to other religions of the world, not a threat. Well, that is certainly one of the... uh the characteristics of the emergent of the emergent church that its boundaries are rather porous and and so it uh, engages in a certain kind of elect eclecticism of uh, picking up uh, different pieces not only from different denominational or confessional traditions within Christendom but developing an openness uh, to world religions that uh, what is scandalous to the emergent church uh, is the particularity, the parochialism of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus is seen as too limiting. Jesus is a window uh, through which we may see the divine. Uh, he is a way, but he is certainly not the way. He is certainly not um, he is, he is, he is certainly not the final revelation. Of, of God in the sense that Christian orthodoxy has, uh, uh, has claimed on the basis of uh, the book of Hebrews, for example, uh, that uh, he is God's uh, final word, that we expect no new revelations or something that would supplant or, uh, or, sup- or, uh, or, or render the cross and the resurrection obsolete, uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, making peace through the blood of the cross, and that action is uh, definitive. It is uh, uh, grounded in a particular history, and um, and and that uh, and that history is not uh, then uh, dispensable. Uh, and in that sense, you see, uh, McLaren and the emergent church movement, generous Earth, uh, his book, generous orthodoxy. It seems to me. Uh, follows quite nicely with uh, uh, with the uh, Enlightenment philosopher Lessing. Uh, Lessing's argument was that you can't base spiritual truths, uh, which are to be ultimate and universal, on the accidental truths of history. And yet, the the, the uh, claim of the New Testament it is precisely in these so-called accidental truths of history, uh, the foolishness of the cross, uh, that uh, that God was at work once and for all to answer uh, to answer the problem of human sinfulness. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Professor Bleichman. Very generous, generous with your time. I appreciate it very much. And generous with his orthodoxy as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good to be with you guys as always. Thank you. Take care. All right. And in, uh, enjoy the Thanksgiving and end of the church year and anticipate uh, the upcoming Advent season. Well, thank you. You too. Well, stay tuned for more Table Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be right back after this break uh, doing something else. I don't know what we have planned. we got something great Law and or so. gospel, Google it, something like this. Yeah, something like that. We'll be right back. More Table Talk Radio after this.
The Donate Now button at tabletalkradio.org is now open for your convenience. Through PayPal, you can make fast, secure, huge donations to the show. So visit our website, and thanks for listening to Table Talk Radio. <laughs> Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. Uh, law and or gospel is the game we decided to play. and uh, We rolled the Urim and Thurim to decide <laughs> what game to play. That's right. I um, like this Urim and Thurim idea because, look, it, it even means even less preparation for the show. <laughs> I mean, now all we have to do is open my box of the Settlers of Catan and take out the dice, and now <laughs> we're ready to play. I can't believe that, Professor Plus, either. Yeah, that that's amazing to be able to do that. That's great. Don't do that. You know how they have warnings on the shows? Don't try that at home. Don't try what Professor Pless just did at home to answer <laughs> questions as all these different theologians. It's uh, it's stunning. Yeah, I think I'm going to start uh, doing my multiple choice uh, tests that way, just rolling rolling dice. <laughs> yeah, that might work too. I think we could have Professor if he if he could have some different accents, we could just have him on as different <laughs> type of stunning. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, law and or gospel. He, uh, by the way, has how many points? Sixteen hundred points from that. So neither of us have any points. He has sixteen hundred, so we got a long way to go. To by the way, have you had to issue uh, any thousand point indulgences from from last week's uh, phone message? I don't know because uh. the show hasn't even aired yet. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm sure thousands of people or hundreds of people or two people are going to call and get. Uh, you're going to be all out of points to give away. I know it. <laughs> okay, law and or gospel. This is how the game works. Uh, we'll read a, a passage from the scriptures, and we'll send it to the other person to guess whether it's law and or gospel. The rules go like this. If the, uh, the passage shows us um, what God expects us to do, tells us what to do, shows us that we are deserving of God's wrath, uh, then that is law because that is what the law does. It it, uh, it shows us our sin and, and, and the, the wrath of God that we deserve uh, because of it. Uh, the gospel, however, um, it, it shows us the righteousness of Christ. If it, the pastor is talking about the, the perfect life of Christ, if it's talking about um, uh, God bestowing his forgiveness to sinners, that is gospel. So uh, now, now you know how to play a pastor, Wolf Miller. Thank you for telling me that. This is I, it's amazing, this law and gospel stuff, to be learning this. All right, you want to go first? I have a verse for you. The verses today are brought to you by St. Paul and his letter to the Corinthians, his first one. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to draw these verses from. Uh, so here you go. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Okay, this uh, passage, I think, shows the clearest law because it shows us uh, what we are and who we are apart from the righteousness of Christ. If Christ had not taken on the punishment for for sin upon himself, if uh, Christ had not raised from the dead, then we are most to be pitied. So uh, that is law because it shows us in full clarity who we are apart from Christ. You are right. Law it is for 200 points. All right. I'm writing it right under the, your column here, RC. Stands for Radio Clown. 
200 points. You can, right. see, you can check my honesty and fairness <laughs> now since we're in the studio That's together. nice to do once in a while. Tragic. All right. Okay, where are we? Your uh, question for me, please. Rudy. Okay, this is from uh, the Gospel of Mark. This, it is this, chapter 1. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make way the uh, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This be law or gospel. That's the very first verses of Mark, huh? And uh, and it's the promise of the of the way preparer, John the Baptist. Um, it comes from Isaiah forty, is where the promise is, where the Lord sent, promises to send the one to to make way for the coming Messiah. And he'll and he's doing two things. He's 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 lifting up the low places and tearing down the high places. In other words, he's preaching repentance. So the question that we have to ask is, is the preaching of repentance law and or gospel? We know from the scriptures that repentance embraces two parts. The first part is that we hear the law uh, and that it stings us. It, 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 it burdens our conscience. It shows us everything that we've done wrong. And then the second part of repentance is that we believe the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he's, that he's given us life and salvation. And, and so really, John the Baptist, this is a promise of the coming of John the Baptist, who comes to deliver both law and gospel. And so I, I'm going to put this category in, the, in the, this verse in the and category, that it is law and gospel. That is correct. That's 100 points for you. 100. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Take 200. It, it looked, economic times are bad. We've got to pull back on points. <laughs> That's right. Whoops. <laughs> Tearing things up over here. All right. Um, it's, I guess it's your turn. Then Law and order. You don't me. have any comment on the text? Uh, Didn't you just preach think, on that text? I think you did a wonderful job. Uh, didn't you steal my sermon outline for that text? No, I didn't actually. Uh, I, I was preaching on the uh, Isaiah text that you, you referenced, but I didn't use your outline that you gave me. And what the grade did you get on your sermon? Huh? A minus. But that was when I was up till five thirty. Uh, oh, working. That's right. That's right. All right. Just getting ready. You you ready to have a baby? All right. Let's see here. We're going to continue on in. Uh, Wait first a minute. Qu- You're the one that doesn't even wake up in the morning. What are you talking about? I mean, to to care of the baby. I so. was. You know, I was up last night, 12.30, 2.30, and 5.30. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Isn't that what Carrie told you? <laughs> no, she said, she in fact said it's not even worth trying to get you up because <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> I'm always so afraid that I'm so out of it when I wake up that I'm just going to run into the wall with a baby and crush the guy. All right, 1 Corinthians 15.20. But now... Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay. I didn't know if you were done. <laughs> well, I kind of am, except for I want to do, I want to do the next one if we have time uh, because then it gets really great law gospel-y here, but let's just do this verse first. Okay. Remember uh, last time when I was talking about uh, us seeing all of our sin uh, be- without apart from Christ? Mm-hmm. Well, now the opposite of that. <laughs> all of our sin is, re- is removed from us uh, it was uh, placed upon Jesus, and now he rises from the dead, which is pure gospel, which is the answer. Gospel. That's right. That's right. Now, here, I'm going to give you some more. There's a chance to get more points because, look, this really gets great here, and I don't want to miss this. Verse 21, 22, and 23. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, each in their own order. That is 
law and gospel and law and gospel. Yeah, beautifully. Back and forth, back and forth. This point, counterpoint. In, uh, by man came death, law. By man also came resurrection from the dead, gospel. In Adam all die, law. Even so in Christ all shall be made alive, the gospel. Beautiful. Oh. Very good. Well, uh, I, I think we have time for me to give you another one. You ready? Ready. Also from the Gospel of Mark. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, again, we see... Now, this one is going to be this sort of the same. Repentance, remember, has two parts. If if you guys who are out there listening, you know, trying to trying not to but can't help yourself, you know, some sort of mental disease where you listen to Table Talk Radio, if you remember one thing, you can remember this, that repentance embraces two parts. Uh, sorrow, contrition, the law... And then faith, trust in the gospel. And so when John comes preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins, you, you see it there. There's repentance, contrition, sorrow over sin, uh, and then this forgiveness of sins, which comes in in, uh, in baptism. So this verse also is law and gospel, but mostly gospel, because it has this great emphasis on baptism and the forgiveness of sins that's there. 200 points. And this text is very timely f- uh, for uh, this week being the second week of Advent. Oh, good. All right, that's going to be uh, all the time we have for Law and or Gospel. One more segment left of Table Talk Radio in which we play Google It. Oh, my favorite game. We'll be right back after this. It's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Faith and love are really two exactly opposite things. We can think of it like this. Love is what gives. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave. We know what comes next. Give. Love gives. Uh, Jesus says, No greater love is man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend, that he give his life for his neighbors, for his friend. Love is always giving, serving, dying even to give and to serve. Faith, on the other hand, receives. Faith is at the getting into the gift. Faith is what says thank you uh, very much for this. So the Lord loves us in Christ. And by faith we receive or have hold, take hold of that love that he gives to us. Now, we always confuse it. We want to have faith in our neighbor and love towards God. We want to receive things from our neighbor, justice and fairness and good treatment and all this sort of thing. And we want to then show our love and gratitude to God as if he is poor and he needs the things that we have to give. But that's reversing the way that God would have it. His love gives to us marvelous benefits, blessings, beyond our our asking or even our imagination. We have faith towards God who gives us these things. And then we have love towards our neighbor. As we share the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of love and life and forgiveness, as we share those with the neighbor who God has given as well, so we're, we're, we live as uh, Luther learned from the scriptures in faith toward God and in love towards the neighbor. May God keep us properly ordered in this life and even in the life to come. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org.
final segment of the program. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. We're playing Google It. Uh, I think we've only played this once before, Pastor Wolfgang. So this is uh, our listeners um, aren't familiar with this game. They're probably they were clamoring for it. What do you mean? When are you guys going to play Google It again? I'm sure they were. <laughs> Google It. Google it. We we love your website so much at www.tabletalkradio.org. We love the forum so much. Oh, we just love that stuff. So nice plug, by the way. You got it. Look. Hey, uh, on the uh, on the forum, I added uh, the top ten reasons um, why you can buy Table Talk Radio merchandise. Table Talk Radio junk. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> you can go on our website and buy Table Talk Radio junk. It's the best way to put it. Uh, but uh, I, I remember all of them. But um, you can get you can get a bib. You can get a bib with our logo on it. And uh, one of the reasons is who doesn't love a baby drooling all over Pastor Wolfmiller's face? Oh, nice. Appreciate that. The other is you can buy a Table Talk Radio yard sign to replace your <laughs> vote for Ron Paul uh, yard sign. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> did, um, the, did By the way, uh, oh, what was I going to ask you about our junk on there? Uh, has anyone bought anything? That's what I was going to ask you. Uh, no, but Christmas is coming up. Oh yeah, that's and right. <laughs> Perfect stocking, stocking stuff. Yeah, it's, it's your uh, oh, I know. one stop. Also, did you put the the bearded and not bearded on there? Or no, I'm going to though. Unbearded. You can buy the bearded or unbearded version of merchandise of Pastor Wolf Mueller. Maybe with the Santa Claus thing <laughs> stick, you should do bearded. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was funny. Uh, the, the story behind that was when we had the logo made. The the pictures we submitted is a picture of Pastor Wolfman with a beard on, which is available on our website, by the way. My um, Linton beard. But but then he didn't like it, so he had the artist remove remove it. So. He gave me a shave with an eraser. <laughs> okay. Uh, Google it. This is how we, we search for... This is a lot like our game that we play, Text Message Theology, where we uh, train about what, what the popular... Uh, opinion, I guess, is a, a theological term. So we type in a, a theological term into Google, and we talk about the top results. And so uh, today's search term is the word justification. And um, we have we have two articles of different to talk about. Um, the first one, of course, is the Wikipedia. No one no one reads that, right? Right. And then uh, the next one you have, Pastor Wolfman. This is an article titled Justification by Faith Alone, a Plea for Understanding by a Dr. Mahone, uh, McMahone uh, from PuritansMind.com. It's just a one-and-a-half-page deal, and there's really not too much here to it except for it's kind of a long harangue about how people don't like doctrine, and they should. Uh, and they and there's and then the second part is some doctrines are more important than the other. For example, the doctrine of adoption is more important than the chronologies of the Old Testament. And then he says, but what's the most important of all? And this this doctor uh, McMahone gets right. He says it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now maybe one of the things that um, uh, we could talk about here as we look over this article is he says that uh, today I believe, and I'm quoting from the article. As it was in the 16th century, the need to regain lost ground in the understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone has come to the forefront. So I think the writer here has the idea that in different ages of church history to to speak different doctrines, to have them clearly settled uh, is, is important. So that it depends on when it is in church history, how important the doctrine is. And, and to that we say, look, it, from beginning to end, the doctrine of justification from the Garden of Eden until the the resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth, the doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, is the church, which is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls, by which the church lives. 
But otherwise, this article is fine. It ends like saying this, let us think rightly about one of the most, if not the most important doctrine in the, in the entire Bible, the doctor, ju- doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, the trouble is it actually doesn't ever say what that doctrine is. There you have it. All right, well, this, the third result after Wikipedia and after uh, Patrick Wolfmuller's article that he just read is the uh, article on New Advent, which is the online uh, Roman Catholic uh, website that, uh, on justification. And uh, there's three parts here we, we can discuss. Um, it, it breaks up the definition um, justification, uh, first considered as an act and then considered as a state. Uh, and then it goes into the Protestant doctrine on justification. So uh, it starts out by saying this. Uh, uh, justification is a biblio-ecclesiastical term which denotes the transforming of, a, of the sinner from a state of unrighteousness to the state of holiness and sonship of God. And it goes, in, goes into considered as an act. Justification is the work of God alone. Presupposing, however on the part of the adult, the process of justification and the cooperation of his free will with God's preventing uh, and helping grace. Do you want to start there? Prevening, right? Prevening. Prevening, sorry. Yeah, yeah, this is right. So you say, wow, that's you. But maybe there's something else coming. And there was uh, (laughs) because, look, we got to cooperate in it. But look, this is the Roman Catholic idea that you're. That that justification is a process. It's something that that's dragging out. It's the it's the work of the of the Holy Spirit, which begins in baptism, even before baptism, and continues throughout your whole life, to where you're growing in holiness. This is why uh, the the big difference in the um, in the Reformation when it came to grace was is grace uh, imputed or in infused. Is it the infused grace of God, which is sort of a, something that comes along and empowers you to do meritorious works, or is it something that's that that's implied to your account? And so, rather than being a um, a term that denotes a state of being, a justification is a legal term. It's a it's a matter of of declaration. It's a it's courtroom language. Not um, I can't think of the word here. What's the word for the way something is. Uh, oh, come on. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's about the courtroom. It's about being declared. And so we are holy, not by being infused with grace, which we then cooperate with to do meritorious good works and so grow in this sort of thing. We are justified because because God, on behalf of his son Jesus, has declared our sins forgiven. And he no longer holds them to our account. That's why, really, we have to emphasize these words in the Scripture where it talks about uh, I- imputation. Uh, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, but rather uh, the one to whom the Lord imputes the righteousness of Christ. That th- this language of imputation is the is central to understanding this doctrine of justification. Well, yeah, and, and do you think he, the, the author of this article, negates everything he he said when he said that justification is the work of God alone? Presupposing, of course, that it's in the cooperation of, of his free will. I mean, think about that. If I said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you something, it's gonna be, I'm going to do all the work for it, as long as you cooperate with me. That's Does that right. make any sense whatsoever? No, no, I know. That's right. I mean, uh, be, there's always this question of, on conversion or justification. What are the effective causes of it, you see? And is man's will an effective cause of justification? And, and every church, except for the Lutheran church and maybe some stray rogue 
Calvinists say, no, man's will doesn't have anything to do with it. This is, it's God's will, it's God's work to convert man, to justify man, to declare man forgiven and holy. That's, that's it. Okay, let's move on then uh, in this article. Uh, justification considered as a state. Um, it denotes the continued possession of a quality inherent to the soul, which theologians ineptly termed sanctifying grace. Since the 16th century, great differences have existed between Protestants and Catholics regarding the true nature of justification. As the dogmatic side of the controversy has been fully explained in the article on grace, you can go to the website if you want to look at that, um, we shall here consider it more uh, from a historical point of view. And then it goes into the, the Protestant doctrine of justification. But maybe uh, speak to that, uh, that justification considered as a state uh, inherent to the soul. Yeah, the Catholic doctrine is all about these virtues, these states, these. Um, I, why can't, in the world can I think of that word? It's probably because I'm having to sit here and look at you. You're just <laughs> drawing it out of my mind. I, I can't figure it out. But it, it's 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 not about it's not about being. It's about the the Lord's word. It's about it's about His declaration. It's about what He says. So that. So that to be justified is not to be a saint. In other words, someone that possesses um, in a sort of intrins- intrinsic or eternal way the holiness of God. It, no, to be justified is to be forgiven, to be named as God's child. Uh, it, it's to be absolved. It's a matter of his word, not a matter of state of being. And, and this, they're right about this. This is an essential difference between... Um, between the Protestants and the Catholics on on the, the central doctrine, they they see grace as a sort of as a, a state or a, a substance or something like this. We understand that grace is simply the favor of God. It's His disposition towards us. It's God's smile. It's that God looks at us and and, and sees not our sin but the righteousness of Christ. That's what His grace is. Uh, it's not something that's poured into our hearts, but it's. It's something that belongs to God himself. Well, we just have a, a little bit of time left. Uh, let's maybe just start talking about this this last one, uh, on the Protestant doctrine of justification. It says, um, The ideas on which the Reformers built their system of justification were by no means really original. They had been... Uh, they had been That's cons- right. They were in St. Paul and, and, <laughs> and even no, the no, prophets. No. Uh, according to New Advent, they had been conceived long before by the heretics of the earlier centuries <laughs> or by isolated Catholic theologians who had been quietly scattered as the seat of future heresies. So anyway, they, they, they accused the, uh, the, the Lutheran justification stance of being antinomian, uh, which means uh, to, to be with no law. Uh, right, Pastor Wolfman? That's right, antinomian. They, they always uh, considered the... Uh, Lutherans to be kind of dualists, um, Marcionite or um, Manichian. I still don't know how to say that. Word. <laughs> um, yeah, and so they, when when the Lutherans would say, "Look, we're saved by 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 faith alone," uh, then then, they, then their accusation immediately came like, "Well, then you you think that we don't have to do any good works? No, good works aren't uh, a part of this deal, and uh, you must be." Antinomian, no law. I'm flipping through my book of Concord here because this is a beautiful section in in the Augsburg Confession. Where this is really the first time the Lutherans are getting after it and saying what they believed. Article six has to do with good works, and then and this is where the the phrase faith alone first appears in our confessions, and it and it's a quote from Ambrose, 
who was not a stray uh, Catholic theologian. I mean, Ambrose, goodness. Ambrose says, It is ordained of God that he who believes in Christ is saved, freely receiving remission of sins without works by faith alone. Uh, so they're right when they say that uh, this isn't a new doctrine. In fact, the Lutherans go through a bunch of uh, hassle to prove that they're not teaching anything new. The new business is all this medieval uh, cooperation with God nonsense. Uh, what the Bible teaches is that God alone works, affects, gives uh, the forgiveness of sins, which is that God alone is the one who justifies the sinner. And after playing Google it only two times, you come to the same conclusion. Don't turn to the Internet for your theology. Unless it's tabletalkradio.org. There you go. That's right. They can read the article that you wrote and put up there. (laughs) (laughs) What article would that be again? I don't know. Our listeners, like they're (laughs) clamoring for Google it. They're clamoring for you to finally write something. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Table Talk Radio. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Table Talk Radio. The views expressed on this show are that of the hosts and do not reflect the views or opinions of this station. We would like to answer your questions concerning theology, the scriptures, or anything else. Send your questions to questions at tabletalkradio.org or leave us a voicemail message, 866-851-5523. Be sure to check out our website, tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next time to Table Talk Radio.